Hello everyone and welcome to another instalment of New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast series coming out of the Institute of Intellectual History at St Andrews. I'm your host Robin Mills. This week we're talking to Professor Richard Whatmore. Hello Richard, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very nice <laughs> to be here. It's excellent to have you. So Professor Whatmore is the Chair of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and the Co-Director of the Institute of Intellectual History. He's the author and co-editor of many publications on the intellectual history of 18th century Europe, focusing on the French Revolution, political economy and republicanism, as well as being the editor of the journal History of European Ideas. He has a new book out entitled History of Political Thought, which is published as part of Oxford University Press's very short introduction series. And it is in Richard's capacity as an expert and commentator on the discipline of HBT that we're talking with him today. So um, you've already written one book introducing, or maybe more intellectual history, that was with Polity Rice in uh, 2015, 2016. Um, why did you return to the subject? Um, what's the purpose of this book? Have you changed at all since uh, <laughs> since that volume of, of just a few years ago? Yes, it, it's a very good question because I think some people might assume that I wrote one book, What is Intellectual History? change the title to the history of political thought a very short introduction and republished it but that is i promise not the case i wrote the very short introduction because oup contracted another scholar to write the book but there was a there was a big delay and i, I think it was because the original plan was to cover the history of political thought in the form of chapters devoted to significant figures so it might have been you know plato aristotle and and through the the masculine canon anyway whoever it was didn't didn't finish it and uh, oup turned to me and the brief really was to give an overview of the discipline the history of political thought and of course it's linked to intellectual history but actually, it was much more fun, I'd say, for me writing the VSI because I could focus on what I know best, the history of political thought. And I didn't have to worry about the breadth of intellectual history, which was a real issue with regard to what is intellectual history. So I enjoyed this, this more actually because they're murder. They're murder because they are genuinely introductions. And that means that they are for people who don't know much about the subject. And the terrible thing about them is that they tend, initially at least, to be read by scholars who know at least as much about the subject as I do. And of course, therefore, find it uh, wanting. And it's 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 a real challenge actually to to write an introduction but i felt that having having done one then uh, then i was i was ready to do another and I, and i think that uh, the the vsi is 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 a lot better actually so when people uh, talk about what is intellectual history I, I say well that's old hat go to the the vsi uh, rather than the old volume i hope polity are not listening <laughs> Had, you, had your sort of um, understanding of HPT changed? Because uh, I feel like the emphasis, the, sort of the emphasis of certain aspects in the more recent volume, quite different to what you were writing in 2015, 2016, that your sense of the purpose of the discipline, uh, the discipline's challenges and so on. 
that that had changed. Is that would you go along with that? I'd say that's that's definitely the case. I remember, you know, way back when, obviously, we're going into the mists of time. Istvan uh, Hont saying to me, why study the history of political thought? Because you enjoy it. You know, it's a calling and it makes you happy being a scholar in this field. And that's the only rationale other than that it teaches a scepticism, both about Marxism and about liberalism. And he saw political thought, the mission and actually the achievement, certainly in his work and, and those of uh, many other scholars, John Pocock, Quentin Skinner, Richard Tuck and, and, and a host of other major figures as having really challenged Marxism and liberalism and the and the assumptions, especially the historical assumptions on which those philosophies were based. So I think he he certainly would have argued that it's a sceptical tool, the history of political thought, that it it can set up the questions and then you leave it to political philosophers to to find the answers. I think that the big change is that historians of political thought are now expected to find answers to. Obviously, there's been a uh, a global turn. There's been a an association between the study of history and, and morality, especially contemporary morality, obviously with regard to oppression and the evils of empire and such like. And therefore, the discipline has, has unquestionably changed. I was quite pleased about that, actually, because one of the authors that that I've spent quite a lot of time with since writing What is Intellectual History has been Samuel Puffendorf. And I loved the fact that Samuel Puffendorf's histories, history of Europe in particular, written at the end of the 17th century, the goal was to predict the future. And Puffendorf's prediction was that France was the future, the republics were doomed, the Holy Roman Empire was doomed, and so was petty England, along with Sweden and, and, and other states, the Dutch Republic, the Swiss cantons, etc. And so the role, let's say, of the historian, but also of the historian of political thought, was to predict the future in terms of identifying what the political future not, might be. Now, I'm not going to say that that's the role of historians of political thought, but I do think that in times of crisis, let's generalise and say we've entered an era of geopolitical and political crisis since 2015 in so many nation states across the world and empires, uh, that the history of political thought can identify the crises and historical solutions to the same kinds of crises that tend to re-emerge time after time, let's say in, in, in early modern to modern times. So I think that's another rationale that I think wasn't so obvious. Uh, it makes the discipline exciting, but it also makes it more challenging. Is there, um, so picking up on one element of what you just said, is there a sense in which the discipline is having to update its, uh, its purpose uh, develop new justifications to explain why it's still valid, still worth our time, in response to outside criticism, in a way that it was able to brush off previously, 
what why now what why has that been so setting aside the idea that the world is in crisis since 2016 um just focusing in on that idea that we're under greater pressure now in the book you describe hpt as being in crisis at one point um is it, yeah is are, are we changing under pressure from the outside are we doing that uh, under duress that's another very good question and the answer is that the history of political thought is facing crisis in the sense that it's having to change itself in response to a different intellectual landscape and obviously the landscape also with regard to jobs because if if intellectual historians and historians of political thought can't get jobs then then there isn't a future for the discipline and that's something that i worry a lot about but with every crisis comes opportunity you know i really passionately believe in the role of unintended consequences so if something terrible happens there's always a silver lining and it always leads to innovation you know there's nothing like crisis to to stimulate scholarship and i think that means that there there are there's a sense of of urgency in terms of the work that's being done but there, there is a, a direct sense of relevance and you know the glory days let's call them <laughs> of intellectual historians and historians of political thought being i don't know let let's say public intellectuals perhaps there's there there's been a time in recent dec decades that since the founders let's say and let's call the founders people like pocock and skinner that there's been a an establishment of a of a field and of a discipline and obviously that's what i argue and that's what i describe in the book there's different approaches but there's no question that 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 the establishment was successful now at the moment there is a sense um perhaps we haven't had so many greats let's say uh, i'm including myself as an as an also ran uh, and <laughs> perhaps the this present crisis will actually stimulate people to write the kinds of books that were written by the previous generation that that reached a far greater audience let's say not just within the historical fraternity but beyond because there's no question that is the case with with quentin skinner's work and john pocock's work and and it's very difficult it has been difficult for other scholars to 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 match them in terms of in terms of the interest in their work and if that changes with the present crisis disciplinary crisis in response to changes in national and international politics then it it it, it represents an opportunity and I, and i i think it's exactly the kind of situation where historians of political thought can really um start my audience again because obviously the danger of the creation of of disciplines because obviously i think of everything in terms of the history of republics they establish themselves as a tribe as a as a nation as a republic and then to define themselves often they define themselves against the other outside and you can't doubt that something like that has happened with regard to the history of political thought and, and if because of the challenges that the discipline faces some of the walls are coming down uh, again, let's talk about republics for the creation of republican empires. 
but I'm talking about intellectual empires, not not the terrible ones. <laughs> but this, I, one of the things I thought was quite striking, and I was educated in the subject in the late noughts, so 2008-2009, and I don't remember there being any, so this is in London, I don't remember there being any emphasis on the political utility of what we were doing. That wasn't there. There was uh, a conversation about the final chapter of Liberty Before Liberalism, about what the point might be for studying studying past ideas, but it was never uh, framed as boldly, I think, as you have done in this introduction, that is a very confident of a clear statement that HBT can speak very um, uh, informatively and very precisely to contemporary concerns. That that's yeah. Do you, would you go along with that? There's quite a shift uh, towards uh, yeah a strong confidence in the ability of this subject to be relevant uh, to the present day. Do you sense that you're um, continuing previous, if you're continuing the line of Pogoff and Skinner, because they were politically engaged, or they became more so, or do you see that as being a bit of a, a bit of a jump, a bit of a, a leap forward? Well, I'd say that it, it, it wasn't a jump for me, not that I think anything that I've, that I've written can be associated directly with the present. Of course, it was obvious to me that it was about the present, but I don't think to any any reader necessarily, but it, it goes back to to my personal education as a historian of political thought, and and uh, I was very fortunate to be trained by lots of luminaries, but then I I ended up being supervised for my PhD by Ish van Hont, and he, for very good reason, told me that I was an idiot and <laughs> to be re-educated. And his view was that your personal politics mattered. I remember him saying to me, because I I used to do a lot of work for the Labour Party when I was doing the PhD, and he said, until you stop believing in socialism, you will not be able to understand the French Revolution. And at the time, I thought, Codswallop. But actually, as time has passed, I think he was dead right because I had blinkers on with regard to the history of political thought because of my personal beliefs. Now, for Istvan, it was all about directly tying the history of political thought to the present. And obviously, if anybody opens the first few and looks at the first few pages of The Jealousy of Trade, then they'll see exactly what he's up to you know, which is saying that Marx is not relevant, nor is Hobbes, if you're talking about the the problems of the present, and Hume and Smith are. And he's not saying, you know, don't read Marx. He's not saying don't read Hobbes. All in context, then you'll come out with a message of direct relevance to the present, and that has to be the goal of the history of political thought. Now, I did think, you know, like you, that that was not an aspiration that could easily be associated with people like John Pocock and and Quentin Skinner. And and actually, uh, somebody showed me on YouTube once a a quite marvellous 
video of, of John Pocock, who's been invited to some foreign policy institute in the States, and they're asking him, what is the relevance of Gibbon? And he's saying there isn't any. And he says it over and over again. And you can see the audience enjoying it, but also getting exasperated, which is one of the reasons to look at it. And for John Pocock, obviously, it's it's making that leap into into political tactics in the present is something that you can only do very carefully. Having said that, of course, he did it with uh, with Brexit. He did it with the European Union, has been a critic of the of the EU for a long, long time. If we turn to Quentin, I felt with liberty before liberalism that it was a, a real shift and it was a, a, a way of refuting the critics who argued that the history of political thought had become irrelevant and antiquarian and it had had a negative impact on political science, political studies, where historians might find themselves in those departments, but they had to contribute to contemporary political philosophy. And the history of political thought at a discipline had, had really not done a service to present politics by making itself obsessed with history rather than the present. Now, I think, so actually the, the the tendency that I that you've noticed in the in the very short introduction, I think, was already marked in the work of major figures like Hunt and, and Pocock. I think it was already marked, actually, if we go back uh, a generation to Koselec, obviously to Foucault, both of whom I talk about their approaches in the book, in the sense of the legacy of the of the Second World War. And, and that's something, again, that I think is a big difference about this text, which is that this book, which is that I've realised the impact of Marxism, the need to provide an alternative to Marxism in terms of a method, a way of studying the past. Obviously, the power of Marxism in the historical community across the West in particular and the fact that the history of political thought as a discipline was an alternative. How far it was an alternative for liberalism was always was always a, a, a more complicated question, but it's something else that I that I talk about in the in the book. So can I you, think can you develop you, that idea. Sorry to interrupt. Can you develop the idea of um, history of political thought being an alternative to uh, Marxist or liberal approaches? to political philosophy? Is that the idea or? I think it is the idea. And I think the idea is that if you look at the history of political thought, it's figures trying to solve problems in politics. And of course, you can't avoid the question if you study an author over a period of time, how far did they have to shift in response to their failures or the change of circumstance. So it becomes about crisis and crisis tactics. And that's, again, partly because I've studied the history of republics, that's always been a major theme in the history of political thought to me. And I think with Marx in particular, the failure of the, of the Soviet Union the description of the Soviet Union as another form of church 
and the fact that republicanism as an ideology and the creation of churches and the creation of nations, they're all tied together. The fact is that radical Puritans, radical Republicans, the belief in community, the capacity to create a strong form of community has tended to be successful if you define very powerful enemies that act as glue, which keep your community together. And I think that's such a major theme, especially in the post-war world, when the assumption was that we'd had such a terrible catastrophe, World War II, that there was a sense that you could you could create communities that were long lasting, that were based on values that people were committed to and that would be sustainable over time. But of course, because we're reliving the history of republics and churches and nations and we can't avoid them and they're recurring themes in the history of political thought, it's meant that the same crises of of erupted especially the further we've moved away from the Second World War. And if you're trained in the history of political thought, obviously you're trained in, in crisis. And the, and the fact is that in the case of Marxism as a, a solution to the, the problem of creating a, let's call it a, a, a Republican empire, or let's call it an ideology that's, that can bring humanity together that's cosmopolitan that presents itself as cosmopolitan in certain cases it hasn't worked you know let alone whether it's compatible with commercial society which is another issue that i've i've always been fascinated by if we turn to liberalism then of course it, it's the same issue you know what form of community is a liberal community and we have had so many different definitions of liberal community and so many different definitions of the kind of commercial society that underpins or that acts as the foundation of a, of a liberal community. And there's been so many changes with regard to, let's call it international capitalism, especially in recent decades with, with neoliberalism, et cetera, that uh, it's, it's, it too, as a, as a mission has failed. And I, I think I keep coming back to, 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 uh, the point that economists failed to predict the economic crisis that almost knocked capitalism out 2008, 2009. And the fact that economists actually have taken the role of historians, I don't think there's any question about that. If you look at, if you look at the, the role of figures, especially academic figures, uh, and scholars and 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 professional economists in the present, you know, the role is to do what historians used to do, which is to predict the future. And I don't think that economists have been any better than historians at predicting the future. And perhaps that's the opportunity for historians of political thought again, because of this focus on crisis tactics, because of the the manifest failure, let's say, in broad brush terms of liberalism and Marxism, that that you're studying the history of alternatives and the history of political thought is full, obviously, as, as Quentin Skinner's neo-Roman Republicans show, there are lots of historical alternatives. 
there are also lots of historical alternatives when it comes to abolishing empire and decolonizing which is another issue that i that i've become particularly interested in and which also characterizes the the vsi can i just drill down a little bit on the idea of uh, hpt offering an alternative to marxism or liberalism from what we've said so far it sounds like the history of political thought can serve as a means of critiquing undoing making us very skeptical about the political proposals ideologies um, of Marxism or liberalism it doesn't sound like it has a positive worldview to it's not in it's not in the form of a political philosophy right it has the role of a, uh, a way of critiquing and exposing the uh, the errors or the problems with other ways of thinking about the past are you saying something more than that I, I, I it sounded a little bit like you were I am <laughs> but not because of my own work but there's no question that let's call it let's call it the moral turn and let's say that increasingly historians of political thought are turning political philosophers or that people who study the history of political thought see as part of their role to move to policy you know let's let's think of outstanding scholars you know Samuel Moyne, Katrina Forrester, uh, Teresa Bejan, all of these figures are people who think that you study the past in order to impact the present and and they come to mind but there's a there's a whole legion of scholars especially interested in globalization and decolonization who think that the relationship between past and present isn't based on skepticism but it's it's based on working out strategies to improve the present on the basis of the study of the past. So I think that this has happened. But but I suppose the point I'd make is that it had already happened in, in Quentin Skinner's work, particularly with the neo-Roman history, with the work with Philip Pettit again a union of a, a political philosopher and a historian of political thought and and actually in PhD theses that have examined again scholars especially from other parts of the world have used the neo-Roman history to make a critique of the society in which they find themselves which claims that it's free but obviously from a neo-Roman perspective isn't and I think that the fact that that is the case, it's meant that historians of political thought, they've always taken a stand, let's say. And of course, they did in the post-war period. And, and going back to some of the criticisms of Quentin Skinner's work in the 1970s, it was, you have to take a stand. Now, Quentin Skinner's argument was obviously, get the history right, and then you'll see things differently. And I think the history has been transformed you know the discipline has been successful in the sense that if you read texts from the 50s and the 60s and you look at some of the scholarship today on any of the major figures but actually the the greater change the greater transformation has been that we no longer study the canon you know and that and that's something i think 
looking at the discipline, it, it's it's been obvious for a long, long time that the major impact really was the the title of 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 Quentin Skinner's Meaning and Understanding, which was the unimportance of great texts. And obviously, it's not to say that they're unimportant. It's to say that they look different if they're placed in context. And placing them in context means relating them to a whole host of other figures, male and female, uh, national and international, from all parts of the world who might have engaged with these texts. And then mm. different stories emerge and different politics emerge. So I think that that's, that's marked you know, you can see that in the history of the discipline and is not new, but it's especially marked in the cases of, of many very prominent scholars working today. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's I think it's it's uh, it's good. There's so many things. There's only um, plates and I'm spinning in my head. We're not going to cover all of them, but um, OK, so. One of the themes, it, it's not it's not a subject of a chapter, but it, the, the sentiment turns up repeatedly uh, in the book where you talk, where you mention the fact that the people study the history of political thought, if you're an undergraduate, will study the history of political thought, most likely in the form of canonical works. If you're in a politics department, say, or sociology department, or whatever, uh, you'll read a canonical work, you'll read a small amount of it, and you'll read it out of historical context. And one of the kind of, um, again, I, th I think it's a very bold book in its clear statement of the significance, but also the, the necessity of HPT expanding. One of the one of the claims you're, you, I think you're making is that HPT needs to muscle in a little bit in politics departments because people are reading these works. They know they're worthwhile, but they're reading them in very simplistic or naive or ahistorical ways. Would that be, is that fair? Could you develop that idea a bit? Yes. The old worry about intellectual history and the history of political thought was that, as, as Donald Winch famously put it, and I've made this point many times, is that you were always playing away games, that you were not part of a, a tribe <laughs> and or a, again, a republic. Uh, and I think that's that's the big change. You know, there's a real sense of of the discipline and and actually academics are tribal. You know, we all have our own tribes and sometimes within the discipline you have different tribes, too. And that's I think that has also happened in the history of political thought. And there's lots of different ways of doing it and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the confidence. Ought to be there. about the existence of the discipline and there being so many practitioners. And I get, and I'm always drawing these Republican laws, it's like the move from being a small state to a large state. And what I'm saying is that's that's a good thing. It's fraught because it means you get a lot of good work and a lot of bad work. And and there's lots of cul-de-sacs that I might perceive that other people might might think were were marvelous. It means you have an endless debate. But it also means that there are that are opportunities. And, and actually, I think, how could anybody reading Hobbes, for example, without reading Noel Malcolm and a host of, of other figures who ensure that you see a different Hobbes and figures coming to prominence? I mean, um, figures such as Puffendorf, you know, so much 
uh, interest in Puffendorf these these days. There's a Cambridge companion coming out that uh, my good friend uh, Knud Hawkinson and uh, Ian Hunter have edited. That's that's pathbreaking, and wonderful work is being done all the time in the history of political thought. And when you study the canon, if undergraduates still study the canon because they're given bits and pieces to do and, and they're under pressure, etc. Then if they then come to the history of political thought, it looks completely different. And I think that sense of excitement, obviously, I see it having a master's programme in intellectual history. Obviously, we call it intellectual history at St Andrews in other major schools, Queen Mary, uh, Oxford or, or Cambridge. It's it's usually presented as intellectual history and the history of political thought. And the students that we get who find their way to intellectual history and the history of political thought, often they're independently minded. Some of them are mavericks, but they all feel transformed. Uh, if they don't drop out because they think it's hard in the first couple of weeks. By the experience of this discipline, so I guess we're several generations on from the start, you know, from the founders, and we're in a very exciting position being taken seriously because we have the confidence about our identity and our relevance, you know, both within the academy and obviously I'm claiming in more general politics that I that I think is, uh, you know, think historically, think historically about about problems and and through the history of political thought and you get you get different and you get a different view. And I'd, I'd really, you know, I'd stand by that. And that's that's uh, and there's not one way of doing it, obviously, and there's not a right way of doing it. But that's something else that we've discovered. That's the claim, I suppose, in the in the BSI. Do you think that <laughs> I had this idea of this line, which will be a bit corny, but that reading your reading the VSI, a sense that politics that HPT is a subject that is ignored by politics departments and unloved by history departments. So the claim that you're making is HPT should be more important in politics departments. Um, what, and I suppose the two questions here are, uh, and they're pushing in different directions, so maybe we'll split them up. But the first one is, are uh, are politics departments listening? Do they care? And the second one is, what, where, where are we left with other historical disciplines? Because there wasn't, I, I, there wasn't something or much discussion in the introduction about how the history of political thought relates to. You can push back against this if you think it's unfair, but relates to other historical disciplines. I felt a little bit like the shift had gone over to policy departments or faced that way. And then our colleagues or soon to be former colleagues in history departments, are, we're not engaging with them so much. Um, so can we split those two up? The, the policy departments, are they listening? How do you make them listen if they're not? And then how does history of political thought relate to other historical disciplines? So I think very good work tends to get an audience and be rewarded by being called relevant. Let's face it, that's what Pocock did with the Machiavellian moment. The Machiavellian moments are fascinating, has a fascinating history in terms of the genesis of the text, like all texts, because John Pocock lacked confidence in the argument 
you know, one of the things that I discovered about it was that he writes to Quentin Skinner and he says, if you want me to remove your name from the acknowledgements because the book might not be successful and it might be ridiculed, then I'm happy to do it. Of course, that would have sounded crazy uh, to, to a friend like Quentin. But nevertheless, that is the case. You know, he had no idea it was going to be as successful and as transformative in terms of numerous fields. Now, with regard to the discipline, there's there's also the fact that it, it's hard. You know, it takes a lot of takes a lot of time. You have to read a lot of texts. You have to study them historically. You have to learn how to think historically. It's a very challenging discipline. It's not something that you can just pick up and and give the kids a textbook and uh, and say off you go. So given the pressures in the in the modern academy and the lack of jobs, et cetera, then, of course, we become more more tribal and there's more pressure on, let's call them, let's call them the lesser disciplines or the interdisciplinary programs. And of course, my first job my job for a long, long time was at the University of Sussex. Intellectual history existed at the University of Sussex because all undergraduates at the time had to take contextual courses for 50% of every single undergraduate degree. So 50% of every undergraduate degree had to be doing interdisciplinary programmes. No surprise, intellectual history became Sussex and there was a demand for faculty. So as people define their fields, it's possible that that politics becomes ahistorical, anti-historical. Of course, I worry about that, especially with regard to philosophy, although the opposite seems to be the case of generalising grotesquely with regard to philosophy. I do worry more about politics and I do think that actually the expansion of politics departments, PPE, is a real opportunity for intellectual historians and historians of political thought and I think it's it's marvelous people employed at, at a, a an institution like King's in in London where lots of historians of political thought have jobs in politics uh in in philosophy teaching uh PPE etc and I think that's that's great I wish there were more in IR departments IR is um divided into lots of different tribes and actually the the history of political thought tribe is 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 less prominent than it ought to be obviously people like David Armitage have been calling for that for decades now and and that's all to the good so can I predict what's going to happen in terms of particular disciplines of course not do I worry that as disciplines become more tribal the history of political thought gets pushed out. That's a that's a major, major problem and, and possibility. But I'd say that all of the all of the disciplines lose because if somebody in, in the politics faculty turns to history, obviously it happens so often in people's retirement. I, I meet scholars who've retired and they say, oh, I've started reading the history of political thought for the first time in my life and I wish I'd done it 30 years before. Well, it's good that they that they're turning to it at any at any point in their in their lives, of course. But I, I think that with regard to 
the second question, the question about about history, you know, history itself with the fall in in undergraduate numbers in in many places and and the sense of a, a more general turn against the past in politics and an emphasis on on history being relevant to the present and the the crisis in in classics faculties and and such like obviously uh seeing classics faculties as obviously being history faculties too then um i think that it's going to be harder within faculties of history obviously i have direct experience of that because i've always been employed in history faculties and i guess it might be the case that i look outside and think the grass is greener in politics faculties or in philosophy faculties you know friends of mine who are employed in those faculties might say don't be such an idiot it's even worse over here but i guess what i'm saying is that that doesn't worry me so much because historians of political thought can be have a lineage they have a history the discipline exists it is relevant a lot of people are uh, are doing work which is explicitly about past and present or using the past to make pronouncements on the on future politics and the way it ought to go and i think therefore that it's we're in a good position while of course being surrounded by potential crisis and 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 that again obviously if you study the history of political thought that is very normal so uh again just to to say it one more time i see the discipline as the history of a republic and at the moment i think the walls are coming down don't know what's going to come next but uh hopefully there's there's real opportunities and and i worry about the younger generation if if there's one area of of pessimism because i see you know my own history as an academic i think it would have been infinitely harder for me trying to get a job today i very much doubt i would have i think i think there would have been so many other people who were a lot better uh, than i <laughs> i've ever been uh, and there's so many fantastic scholars who we've trained you know who've been trained in the history of political thought really outstanding and who are finding it difficult very very difficult to get jobs and and that that's that's partly the reason for the speculation which you've picked up on in the book because it's something that i that i that i am really concerned about and and i do feel that we ought to shout about the discipline and say how important it is while worrying that there are not enough jobs it's very interesting that historians of political thought can because we tend to be all-terrain vehicles you know politically philosophically historically that we're very useful to all sorts of different faculties and some programs you know studies i'm thinking of programs in the netherlands international studies programs taught in english across the netherlands and in other parts of europe lots of historians of political thought get jobs teaching that kind of subject not international relations international studies what we need are hybrid programs new interdisciplinary programs let's say global history you know global history without the history of political thought to me makes no sense at all that might be a future for the the subject in in history faculties 
I've mentioned PPE uh, with politics and and philosophy. But we do need, you know, we need more interdisciplinarity. We need more hybrid degree programs at undergraduate level, because another concern is that is that we remain a graduate subject, a subject for graduates. You have to find your way through the the undergraduate maze and you emerge saying, perhaps I'm a historian of political thought and you find one of the programmes and that's all good. But I, I wish more undergraduates realised that, that the tribe is there. One thing I'd want to say about that uh, is, I'm trying to work out as someone who might still want to be employed by certain institutions, what I can say about them, um, is that the places I've taught HPT at, HPT has been far and away the most popular subject amongst undergraduates. I by far not like you know huge numbers doing who want to study it, um, which is really interesting. That where undergraduates do have the opportunity to do so down in London or uh, in Oxbridge or St Andrews, I don't know what I don't know what, what it's like in St Andrews. But there's a big demand for it. And who knew that a 18 year old would be interested in big ideas? Well, I don't know why that's about that would be surprising. But the other the other point that you make in the book itself, which I thought was very interesting, is that while the subject is described as being in crisis in terms of um, how it positions itself, how it justifies itself, you also mentioned that it's never been healthier in terms of publishing. You've never had such numbers of works being published, uh, so many journals, so much activity, um, which suggests a discipline that still has a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. You talked about excitement earlier, a lot of, you know, there's still much, much to be done. It's not, I don't know whether, I, you sort of hinted at this earlier, and I, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but there the was perhaps a fear 10 or 20 years ago, maybe, that where's, where's the discipline going? Where's the energy? Where's where's the uh, the next set of oh, I think it's, it's what you actually said, sort of the next uh, set of superstars who are going to um, revitalize and direct future research programs and so on. Uh, but yeah, that, that does feel. While on one hand there's elements that are challenging, there's also real um, the the vital signs seem to be good. I would say. But on that, I want to bring us sort of. I don't want us to go much beyond an hour, or you get to an hour. Uh, can we, we sort of end with a conversation perhaps about the, I don't know if this is how you'd want to talk about it, how you, you'd want to describe it, sort of the culture war stuff that we've been going through the past couple of years. And what I quite liked about uh, the VSI was uh, your willingness to take on board some of the criticisms that the HPT has been subject to the past few years defending the subject when those criticisms are not fair, but also being aware of where we can go in the future. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, that kind of wider cultural moments we're in. So not the nationalism stuff and the crisis stuff, but more the, the um, I don't know, the social activism. I don't want to use these words without sort of making them sound pejorative. It's not my intention at all. But yeah, that, that, the, those sort of moralising pressures uh, from the outside. Yeah, that's a, a, another super set of questions. And I think just last point on the on the, the point about attracting undergraduates. Of course, I have complete faith in in the discipline and the fact that it is attracting large numbers. And obviously it has become 
an international discipline because of the numbers of PhD students uh, across Asia and South America, obviously across North America. It's a global, it is a global discipline now. And it's the case that partly because people like Quentin Skinner are such brilliant writers, which I, I think matters enormously, that a very large audience is reached, you know, texts like Quentin's Machiavelli, obviously redone, will have massive sales globally, I've no doubt at all, and, and will reinvigorate the subject in the way that his work always always does. The same with so many, so many scholars. And so I think it's very, I think it's very, very healthy. And the crisis in the academy that that you know parts of Europe and and North America especially are, are facing, I think uh, we can always be confident that we can that we can attract very good students. And and that obviously part of the crisis. I don't think it's all of the story of the crisis. Part of the crisis is obviously the culture wars. And again, here too, actually, I think that, and it's the argument that you've picked up on that if you talk about broadening, abandoning traditional canons, broadening authorship, uh, being diverse in terms of the sources and the texts and the artifacts and the images, then that has always characterized the history of political thought as a discipline, as I describe it in the VSI. It's part of the reason why I start with a with an 18th century print, uh, because it, it shows that that was the way that political thought was conducted at the end of the 18th century for so many people and, and how it reached a popular audience. So in terms of the my only worry about the uh, the culture wars is that there's a there's a tribal element, of course, you know, fanatic republicanism is something that I've studied a lot. And I, I do worry about it because I think it, it's akin to creating a church. And when you're creating a church, you define your membership by attacks on enemies. And it means that you you necessarily exclude people while claiming that you're doing the opposite. Obviously, these are these are standard Republican tropes that you've seen many, many times in the in the history of pretty much all all republics and all communities that define themselves in a with a strong form of community, of course. So, so I think that uh, from my perspective, there's 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 very very positive elements that that I accept entirely in terms of the arguments of 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 people who say that traditional scholarship has been narrow, has not asked the right questions, has not been diverse enough, has not looked at uh, the history of women in particular and other communities that that ought to have their history told. But I think that that's what the history of political thought has, has always been doing. And I, I don't think being a force for, let's call it decolonization, because I think it, it always has been. It's always taken communities and looked at their histories and their natures and their identities and presented them to a to a wider audience so i think that we as historians of political thought can join in aspects of the culture wars 
while emphasizing that all culture wars, when they become exclusive, fanatic, that's when you worry about them because it, it becomes a particularist church. And, you know, the history of, of, of rights and cosmopolitanism, so many times in history, it's the cosmopolitans, the people who are speaking on behalf of the whole of humanity or the whole of, as it used to be called, mankind. They're the ones who turn violent because of the nature of the community they create and the nature of the of, and the crisis they find themselves in. And I think that's that's something that I worry about. So I, I actually explain the wars as, a, as another Republican history. But I do think that because Republican history has been so important in the history of political thought as a discipline, then actually there's no question that it's been it's a it's a force for decolonization. You know, actually, in the history of political thought, you find a demand for the abolition of empires on a on a regular basis. You know, a lot of the history of political thought have, has been about saying, let's create smaller communities because smaller communities are far, far better. You can have a sense of identity that especially in politics that simply lost in large structures, large communities, large organizations. And obviously that means that it becomes a critique of globalization in its in its homogenous face and its its demand for a homogenous culture. And I think that again, uh, small state Republicans have always been paranoid about being swept away by history. So actually our discipline is, is one that will survive the culture wars. I don't think there's any any question about that and has things to say in its present form. One of the arguments is that I don't think it needs to go through a subaltern moment in order to be relevant. It doesn't have to turn on itself and condemn and present itself as a discipline that just teaches dead white males. Mm. I we're sort I'm of running a, out of. If you look at if you look at yeah. po, uh, Pocock's global history or or Skinner's work, uh, broadening the canon, that was never the goal. So it's it's uh, it's a movement that actually fits. It's a discipline that fits with the zeitgeist, although a lot of people don't realise that. <laughs> so interesting. I just want my sort of teacher hat on, my pedagogical hat on. It's the more um geographically diverse hpt becomes the more difficult it is to be an expert in it surely that it'll become a greater and greater challenge i mean just to be very honest i find it a challenge to know very much about aquinas uh <laughs> about aquinas or maybe even hegel if i'm allowed to say that out loud um that it's you know that that's a demanding already it's a demanding discipline to get control of to get you know to be a uh, sufficiently knowledgeable about to teach it well if we now move into scenarios where we need to know about Chinese and Japanese political thought or Ottoman political thought and so on um, are we not going to get diluted is our expertise not going to get diluted is there not a danger that we're going to spread our toes, uh, ourselves too thinly I don't think so and and the reason that I say that is because in politics the same problems come up over and over again and once you realize that, because that's certainly one of the things I've learned from the history of political thought, then actually what's different looks relatable, no matter where it is uh, across the earth. 
And that means that you become very excited in, in making that connection wherever you study. And of course, it can always be said that you see the global from the particular. Everybody does. It can't be avoided. They will see their field through their own expertise, their specific expertise. And it's it's making connections, you know, as 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 the greats in the subject have already always done and as they will continue to do. I think that that's why the subject works and and that's why, again, the global is something that is connected to the interdisciplinary and it's something that the discipline has always been doing. You know, when again, talking about your work, you know, you've looked at so-called minor authors to illuminate the study of major authors time after time. So have lots and lots of people. I don't think there's any difference between that and looking at a culture globally in another nation and illuminating it through your own particular knowledge and drawing parallels and showing the 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 similarities and the differences. I think it's 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 exactly the same process that that we all we all undertake as historians of political thought. All right, I think we should uh, draw our conversation uh, to a close. I strongly recommend this book to listeners. So it's 35,000 words long if you cut off the index, um, but there's a lot in there. It's a very uh, clear, lucid, engaging uh, little introduction. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I learned quite a bit from reading it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, very useful for an undergraduate starting in HPT, being introduced to it. But yeah, for those of us who've been doing this for a little while, it's still a, a very thoughtful and stimulating uh, book. What are you doing next, Richard? Is there anything you would like to advertise or tell us about uh, what you're currently doing? Well, I suppose hilariously, which I can't explain why that's the right word, but I've been writing <laughs> a book for quite a long time now for Penguin called The End of Enlightenment. And if I manage in the next year to get past my quite brilliant, but also very brutal Penguin editors, then I will have achieved something. <laughs> it's listed on Amazon. I've seen the listing. It's already up well, there. You can't back out now. <laughs> that, that's, very, that's very interesting indeed i'll be i'll be genuinely relieved when that book hits the stands okay professor richard whatmore thank you very much indeed for your time thanks so much robin that was marvelous thanks so much brilliant set of questions mm -hmm.